0: Howdy, friends. You're listening to teaching from our college ministry here at FBC Bryan. We hope you enjoy this message from our college pastor, John Davison, as we continue to journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have any questions, reach out via social media, or you can visit our website at fbcbryan.org college. We hope you enjoy. What's up, friends? <laughs> Y'all got real excited for Zach, but we're going to like... <laughs> sort of, I don't, know, I don't know if I needed that or not. I walked over. I love you, I love you too. I don't know who said that, but I, there's, uh, it was, yeah, okay, I do love you, Spencer. There's, there's people in that section that maybe I don't love so much, but Spencer, you're one of them. I mean, you're just elevated. All right, we'll, we'll play this game if you want to. Um, if you think I don't love you in that section, raise your hand. John Andrew was the first one, and he's pretty much right. Um, so... The, he, he brought that upon himself. Hey. I, uh, I needed that excitement from you, honestly. I walked over, uh, I walked over late. I normally don't eat before uh, we go after this because it's dangerous um, for me too, but I was, I was like shaky, hungry, sitting in my office, and so I went over there to get something to eat, and y'all had eaten everything already. Um, so congratulations, college students. You killed like 80 pounds of pig in there on, on various delivery devices uh, that we thought was a creative way to do that. We'll do that again, apparently you like that. Hey, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We are at the end. We've got the last six verses. We've been hanging out here the entire semester, and we're going to try to wrap this up. Anybody tired? Not just of Ecclesiastes, but just tired. All right, you can raise your hand. You're, you're rolling up. You're getting close to finals week. There's a lot that's going on. Um, some of you girls are like, the ring before spring thing didn't happen. And I'm irritated at that. Some of you guys are like, the freshman 15 thing did happen, and I'm tired of that. Uh, all of these things are true right now, right? And so we're we're... We're hitting the end of this, and I love what he does here. And I'm going to try, I'm probably not going to be quick, but I'm going to try to be quick. From 9 to 14, he has been going on and on for 12 chapters about all is vanity, and the pursuit of these things is vanity, and it's meaningless, and it's purposeless outside of a relationship with God, and him giving you the ability to enjoy the things that he created in the manner in which he created for you to enjoy them it's all pointless and then he wraps up this section in a in a kind of a weird way now i'm going to tell you this the the title in my in my bible is the teacher's objectives and conclusion really these last six verses are about um how you present god's word he's really talking to preachers in the grand scheme of things now, there's a few of you that I know are called to ministry. There's some of you that are like, I'm going to be a senior pastor. Preaching is going to be the thing that's on the table. For a majority of you in this room, that is not, that is not the case. So what we want to do with these last couple verses is, yes, it's talking to preachers, but it is 100% applicable to, to your life and how you handle Scripture. And how you handle God's Word and the importance of it. Because he's been going, hey, life, 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 how you live is important. He's going all about just like the day-to-day and the mundane and the meaninglessness of of the day-to-day. And then he ends with God's Word and its importance. And we can't miss connecting those two things together. That as you go about the day-to-day and as you live your life and as you're trying to, to make sure that you're fulfilling God's purpose for your life, and you're using the things that God created in the right way, the only way that that happens is with this book. The only way that that happens is with God's word. Now, We are going to. We've already highlighted it. Community is unbelievably important. You finding encouragement and life in community, yes. Prayer, 100%. God calls us to that. It should be a daily practice for you to engage in prayer and communion with the Father. All of those are true. But I'm going to tell you, this is your offensive weapon. When you look at the, uh, the armor of God and how it's laid out, you would go, this is the sword that you pick up to defend yourself. It's so unbelievably important what he does here, and there's three things that he highlights in the midst of this section. He gives us some instruction on how to handle God's word, the um, uh, admission, we're going to call it that, admonition, uh, on, on how we wrestle with God's word, and then an exhortation really on how to live in that. And so here's the, here's the instruction. We'll start in verse 9. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. So we see right off the bat that as he is kind of handling God's word, as he's delivering the knowledge of God, this is what he did. He thought about it. He pondered. He, he constantly taught people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged these things. He, just, he pondered or weighed carefully everything that he said. And so when he was sharing God's word with people, that's what he was doing. He considered it so important that he spent time pondering and thinking about what he was going to say. The next one, he sought out or explored, he dug deep into the knowledge of God and what or how he was going to present it to people. He weighed it and he explored it. And then it says he he set in order or he arranged many proverbs. And that word proverb is is not really kind of what you think about in English. It's bigger than that, what he's talking about here. He's really saying it's, he has these lists of wise sayings and these teachings, but these wise sayings and these teachings are divine revelation. It's just not his thoughts. They have been given to him by God. So he weighs it, he explores it, and then he arranges many proverbs. He's been given a divine revelation from God. Verse 10, the teacher sought to find delightful sayings and to write words of truth accurately and so what what he does here at the beginning is he goes this is why God's word is so important and we can't miss hear me you you can't miss how powerful this book is And, and I don't think that you're missing that but but I want you to hear this the importance of this book is so great that it should scare you if you abuse or manipulate it for your own good and not so much because like, like you have to rightfully understand God's word that so, that, so that you can present it to people clearly. Like, that's true. But it should scare you in this way. Not that you're going to get to heaven and God's going to be like, I can't believe you read that verse out of context. You wicked sinner, depart from me. That's not what he's saying. The reason that we should, we should dive deep into it and be scared to, to misunderstand it is this. Eternity is at stake. And not yours. Other people's. That's, that's an unbelievably weighty, important thing that if, if you could rightly understand God's word and then rightly speak it to people, you can, here's what scripture says, the same power that conquered the grave lives in you, which means that that spirit that allowed Jesus to come up out of the grave lives in you, and that spirit raised the dead to life. And so your words, rightfully spoken, can bring the dead back to life. And that's Unbelievably powerful. When we talk about the miraculous, there is no more miraculous thing on this planet than a lost person being found, than the dead coming alive, than somebody experiencing salvation, and us understanding God's word, and speaking it and sharing it with people, preaching is part of that 100%, but then you just like, hey, I read this verse, man, this is what it means, and I wanna share it with you. You doing that can bring life in dead places. It's so important. So he says, he, he weighed it, he explored it, he arranged it into Proverbs, he was sharing it. And then verse 10, the teacher sought to find delightful sayings. And so not only is it important because eternity is at stake, but then I love what he, what he does here. He says that it, eternity is at stake, but also it should be fun. What, what did he say? He says the teacher sought to find delightful sayings and to write the words of truth accurately. If you make the Bible boring, it's a sin. I'm just going to say that. All right. If you make this book boring, you are sinning against God. And when you get there, I don't, he's going to do something to you. I don't know what. So I'm I'm taking that totally out of context. Okay. Don't be like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I've read the Bible before. And there's parts of it that are unbelievably boring, John. That's true. But we're fixing to see some, a really cool truth wrapped up in the midst of that but you need to make this fun. And so is it hard work? Yes. Is it fun? Yes. And, and the way that I think about this, the first church that I served at full time, we were in East Texas um, at in, in the 903 in Bullard, Texas, just, just south, just south of Tyler. And we had a couple things going for us there. Um, Ryan Tomlin, who was Chris Tomlin's brother, literally the guy, you know, how great is our God? guy. Um, his brother was the head basketball coach and he was good at his job. We were the number four ranked team in the state these kids were terrible at football and so they loved basketball that's basically what it was and they were really good at basketball our church when i got there we we built this gym um, that was really really nice and every kid in town came and played basketball and it was like four nights a week i was newly married but we didn't have kids and we had all this extra time and i lived right next door to the church and so we were always over there playing basketball these guys were good and they loved it i was okay at it so i got to play with them it's kind of a cool ministry opportunity we played a ton of basketball during the summer we hosted nba clinics not so our kids could come and learn from nba players we had coaches that used our facility to coach nba players and so i could go from my office and go watch these guys working out now these were d league guys and and guys that played on the bench and stuff that were just trying to improve their game and they were in there for like 10 and 12 hours at a time just all day running drills i'm like you guys are psychopaths at this but this is what they they loved basketball they thought basketball was fun, and they worked incredibly hard at it. And I started looking. I was like, well, who's the greatest? And I'm going to say Jordan, and some of you may disagree with that, and that's fine, but you didn't, your generation really didn't get to see Jordan play. And so I kind of understand it, like you can go back and watch videos and stuff, but, but you don't understand what he did during that time. And so I went from there, and I thought, okay, well, MJ was that. Who is like the modern-day MJ for you guys? And I found this quote. Jordan said this, Nobody touches my work ethic except for one guy, Kobe. Nobody touches it. Okay, now this is an argument if Kobe's better than LeBron, although I think he is. But listen, here's some things. Here's some things that we hear about Kobe. He says this that Kobe would show up for high school basketball practice at 5 o'clock in the morning. He would practice by himself from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. before any of the rest of his teammates got there. That's how it started. The guys that were bench warmers on his high school team, after every practice, he would play them one-on-one to 100. I'm like, what? <laughs> the worst that Kobe, he never lost, the closest that it was in these bench players against Kobe was 100 to 12. And he would do that multiple times a week. Hey, let's play to 100, bro. I'm gonna make you better and I'm gonna be better at the same time. He, uh, in Shaquille O'Neal's book, he said when he was traded to the Lakers and he went in there, he's, he went into to the gym early one day and Kobe was running around the court without a basketball, like grunting and fake dribbling and shooting. And he was like, he would do that for an hour before practice, just running around. And, Co- and Shaq was like, this bro's crazy. Like literally he's, he's losing his mind, but it made him great. In the 2008 Olympics, there's a story that came out. This is the greatest of the great in the NBA that are playing on the Olympic teams. And they all come down to breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning. Chris Bosch writes this. He, he said, we are sitting there eating. And then Kobe comes down the hallway with ice on his knees and his trainers are beside him and he's already sweating. And I'm like, it's eight o'clock in the morning. This bro is three hours into his day and has already accomplished a full workout. We're the best players in the world, and he's one-upping all of us. This is Kobe's work ethic. This is why Jordan said, nobody touches or comes close to my work ethic except for Kobe. And when I look at that, I go, this is one of the things that made him great. You have to put in the work. And basketball is just basketball. Did they love it? 100% they loved it. But how much more important should God's word be? Now, I might be arguing that you should get up a couple hours early and just engage in this and do spiritual work. There is nothing wrong with that. But whatever your rhythm is with God's word that should continually be growing, hear me, you should, be, you should start with like, I'm gonna read God's word for five minutes and it's gonna increase to 10 minutes. It's gonna continue to increase to the point that the spending a couple hours a day with God's word is going to be something comfortable for you. But more than that, the importance of it should rise up because of this. One, you are called to present it faithfully to people because eternity is on the line. You are called to know it well, so when people come against you, you can, you can kind of challenge it with that. And two, it's, gonna, it's supposed to be fun. God's word is just supposed to be fun. It's something that you should delight in and enjoy. And so when he's saying that all of life, all of this stuff is, is vanity, it's meaningless, it's chasing after the wind... But here's the final conclusion. And in his final conclusion, he's going this. This book is so important. If you're not opening it, if you're not engaging with it, if you're not memorizing it, you're missing out on all these things. And so lean into this. This is what he's starting with first. This is, this is the instruction that he has been given to us. Now, what's the admonition that he is pushing us towards? Starting in verse 11. The sayings of the wise are like, cattle prods and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails the sayings are given by one shepherd these are the it says cattle prod some of yours may say goads that's basically what it literally is it's a stick with a sharp point on the end of it and when the animal was kind of getting out of line they would poke it when the animal was being lazy they would poke it when the animal's wandering off they would poke it to get it to go i'm saying god's word does that for you When you are lazy, when you're not paying attention, it is a prod to put you to get you back online or in line. And I love this. And those from Masters of Collections are like firmly embedded nails. What's a nail do? You're like, well, it holds some things, holds some things together, right? I mean, that's its one purpose, really. That's how it was designed. It's like here's a piece of wood, here's a piece of wood. You drive a nail through it. Those two pieces of wood are now together. God's word holds you together. There's another cool little thing that's kind of in this, the language here. Not only does it hold you together, sometimes nails, if they're not completely driven in, they do what? They allow you to hang some things on it. And so not only does this book hold you together, it's the thing that you should hang stuff on. This is Deuteronomy six come alive. This is like, if you're gonna be my foundation, I need to learn that my things in life have to hang on God's word. It's, it's going to direct, it's going to guide, it's going to teach me how to do all the stuff that God has given me to do. I'm just going to hang my life on God's Word. And I think the, the supreme test for all of Scripture and it being spoken out loud or you absorbing it yourself is, does it change you? Is Scripture changing you? Is your time in the Word changing you? Is it, do you see your life coming together even more, being held together even more God, by God's Word? Are you hanging things on god's word is it is it changing you and the person that you are it should be every time that you open it it should just be a spiritual shot in the arm the end of verse 11 as we continue to go through this is is really cool it says the sayings are given by one shepherd verse 11 basically is just like this direct declaration of a divine inspiration that we're seeing here in ecclesiastes Verse nine is the knowledge, the words of truth come alive in verse 10, and then they're given by one shepherd. He's connecting it to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. This is that one shepherd. This is Jesus Christ. This is John chapter 10 come alive. When you connect it with John chapter one that we read this morning, this is he that he's talking about is this shepherd. This Christological signal at the end of this is so obvious, and I love that Solomon doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's like, it's just been given by one shepherd. This shepherd is Jesus. Verse 12, but beyond these, my son, be warned that there is no end in the making of many books and much study wearies the body. He's a realist. He knows that there's no end to the bookmaking. Like imagine if Solomon was alive today, He could walk into our church library, which is a tiny little corner right over there, and be dumbfounded. He could walk into the library on campus, and it would be even more crazy. He could walk into bigger libraries, and his mind would be blown, especially in the theological sense of how many books that there are written about these things. And he's going, hey, there's like no end to this. But, but what he says there, but beyond these be warned, there's no end to the making of many books and most, much study wears the body. He's not really against like studying books per se, but he's, he's against making that the end of itself. He's saying like knowledge is not the same as wisdom. There's, there's a lot of people that just like, I want to know more about scripture and, and I'm on that team, okay? Like I want to know more about the Bible, but that's not where my hope rests, like it's, it's really possible to be smart but not be intelligent. Some people, like you, you're thinking of somebody right now, right? That's that common sense question, you know, when you ask somebody which weighs more, a ton of feathers or a ton of bricks? And people are like, uh, what? If you've never heard that before and you're confused, <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll explain that later. That's that common sense question, and this is what he's saying. It's possible to be smart and to not be intelligent. It's possible to know a lot, but to not be wise. And God's design for us that we see echoed all throughout scripture, God's design for your lives is not to make you a smart sinner. That's not his design. He's not calling you to be smart sinners. He's calling you to be godly saints. Okay, And, and there's a big difference there. Godly saints walk in wisdom. Not in knowledge. And what he's saying in all of this, he's like, hey, don't miss. Don't miss God's wisdom in your pursuit of knowledge. When he's going, hey, this is your life under the sun, you're going to experience the ups and the downs and the difficulty and the joy and all of these things, this ebb and flow of life. And your focus should be to let God's word guide your priorities where you're charting the course of your life, how, where you're setting your focus and going out of God's wisdom, this is how I'm going to live, just like this. When all has been heard, verse 13, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands. For this is for all humanity. That's the CSB. For this is the whole duty of man. This is what it boils down to. And I love this he's like all of these verses here's the final two when all of this has been heard, when I've said everything that I can, when all of it has been spoken he he's basically going like a, a, a better way to a better way to say this is like your focus should be to let God's word guide your priorities when all has been heard when the end is near when when it's boiled down you fear god and you keep his commands that's his final exhortation in the supremacy of god john piper writes this it is not the job of the christian preacher to give people moral or psychological pep talks about how to get along in the world someone else can do that most of our people have no one in the world to tell them week in and week out about the supreme beauty and majesty of god like that should be our goal to to speak loudly of the supreme beauty and the majesty of our god and that it's found in this person of jesus who is this one shepherd and so when i prepare and the same thing that we do with our bible study leaders mine's just expanded a little bit when i when i get ready to stand before you and talk about the bible And when our Bible study leaders prepare, they have these three questions that are at the back of every one of their lessons that help stir that, and they they may ask you this in Bible study too. Um, Three of the five questions that I put down, they are this. What does this this text teach us about God? It's the first one. Then, what does this text teach us about man? What does it teach us about fallen man? And then we then we ask the question, then what do I do? What do I do with that? I also include a couple things in there. What does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about me? What do I want you to know? What do I want you to do? And then what is this text, or how does this text point us to Jesus? What does it say about God? What does it say about me? What should I do with it? What does it say about Jesus? How is this pointing me to Jesus? Because in Luke chapter 24, Jesus clearly teaches that all of the Bible is about him. He just says, hey, all of Scripture is really about me. That includes the book of Ecclesiastes. That includes the book of Song of Songs, which is the next page. If you want to really have your mind blown, just keep reading, all right? And you're like, Jesus? That, like, all of Scripture points to Him, and He highlights that. And so we can't take the Old Testament and just unhitch it from the New Testament and be like, well, that's the old law. We have a new covenant now, so I'm going to focus on the New Testament. All of Scripture points to Jesus. You've probably heard this. Tim Keller is famous for this little little rant that he went on about the Old Testament, and, and I was like, I, I think part of me was going, hey, this is a little bit cheesy that he did this, but I, I need you to hear this, because for some of us, this is unbelievable truth that maybe you haven't heard before that you need to, to grasp about the Old Testament Jesus. He writes this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the wilderness, not the garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain by wicked hands, his blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the better Ark of Noah who carries us safely through the wrath of God revealed from heaven and delivers us to a new earth. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all that is comfortable and familiar and go out into the world, not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain of Calvary and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and to discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who, meditates a new, or who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us living water in the desert. Jesus is the true, <clears throat> excuse me, the true and better Joshua who leads us into the land of eternal rest and heavenly blessing. Jesus is the better ark of the covenant who topples and disarms the idols of this world, going himself into enemy territory and making an open spectacle of them all. Jesus is the true and better Job, who truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Daniel, having been lowered into a lion's den of death and emerging early the next morning, alive and vindicated by his God. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we we safely could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's a true temple. The true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. And when we read all of these things and we connect them to the Old Testament, you have to come to this conclusion that the Bible is really not about you. The Bible is 100% about him, and this needs to be clearly understood in how we preach, is what he's talking about here, God's word, but how you open it and share it. You gotta understand that, that it's about Jesus. We will always and continually point to this one shepherd that Solomon highlights in verse 11. And so when everything is said and done, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. You fear God and you keep his commands. You trust him and then you obey him. That that order is so crucial to us. Fear God means that we put God in his proper place, that our fears and our hopes and our dreams and our agendas and all of those things are in their proper place. And, And then we apply to that like clear and consistent teaching from the word of God. We fear God and we keep his commands. That's the order. We don't keep his commands so that we can. We fear him first and out of that we are able to keep his commands. We fear him and out of that we lean into God's word and we understand the importance of this that eternity's on the line and so we fear God and then we walk in obedience with God. That is verse 13 summed up completely because this is for what? All humanity. It's the whole duty of man, it is completely for humanity. Augustine, church father said this, thou hast made us for thyself and our heart is restless till it rests in thee. That's, that's how we should approach this. God's made us for himself, and we should be restless until we find rest in him, and we're never going to find rest. We're never gonna come to understand rest until you figure out how to obey him. This, is, this goes back to creation, day seven. God looks around and and he says I can rest was God tired from everything that he had done there is no chance that he was tired the reason that God rests at that point is because it's complete the reason that God is able to find rest at that point is because the job is done and so for us, in order to, for us to get to the point of, of finding rest in Christ, we have to be growing in our complete knowledge of who he is. You have to, and I, I don't mean for this to be a shot at any individual in the room, but you have to get to the point where you're no longer on milk and you're starting to eat meat. And hear me, the meat is so much better. All right, You had a small taste of it tonight. All right, We didn't plan that at all. Friday night, our uh, Christmas party for our church staff was at this place that serves a lot of meat, Casado Brazil. Jason Dunton, our contemporary worship pastor, tries to put them out of business every time he goes. Um, why? They have a salad bar, and it's phenomenal. There's salad on it and other things. <laughs> bacon, it's weird. They have a whole lot of bacon on the salad bar and cheese. But you know what everybody goes there for? It's for that little green and red coaster that you flip up and down and Jason leaves it on green the whole time and they just keep bringing meat. Like here's pork, here's chicken, here's beef in 17 different kinds. Here's sauce that you can put on top of it. Keep eating more, you're gonna set a record. This is is why you go there. And hear me, God in his power and in his infinite knowledge and in in how he is, he could have said, hey, I'm going to give you just like baby food, and I just need you in your dumb human stance to understand how to eat baby food, and then I'm going to bring you to heaven. He could have done that, and some of you are like, well, then I would pass this test. But instead, he created this in such a way that you get to chew on and chew on and chew on and dig deeper and deeper and to understand him more, and every layer that you go farther down, the sweeter it is if you would just choose to engage with it, when it's boiled down, here's the end of all of it. All of life can be summarized with this. You fear God. Understand who He is. And out of that, you learn to keep His commands. And in living that way, when, when you do that, I promise you this, the world will be changed. John chapter 1. John the Baptist, who related to Jesus, wept in the womb when Jesus showed up in another womb, which is a crazy little thing that happens in Scripture. He has some disciples with him, and they're sitting there hanging out, and Jesus walks by, and what does John the Baptist do? So it's, it's a cool story. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. And what, what does his followers do? I think it's 137. It says that they followed Jesus. He rightfully spoke the truth to them in a short and powerful way. Look, the Lamb of God, they followed Jesus. You have that same ability. Eternity is at stake. If we would just learn to fear God and keep his commands and allow this book to be the foundational thing that we rest in, people's lives will be changed. That's Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. Let me pray for you. We're going to worship for a little bit and get out. God, God, we thank you. Like, over and over and over again, we thank you. And, and I can't, in, in my life, like there, there's been seasons where this book has not been important, and there's been seasons where it's the only thing that I had to hold on to. And in your faithfulness and in your grace, you continually call me back to it. And for me, I pray that it never loses its importance. And for students in this room, like starting now at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, would they grasp the importance of God's word and how it is the thing that will direct and orchestrate and, and change their life personally, but allow them to be life change for so many other people. And so may that... that those words that we just put on some goofy bracelet, fear God and keep his commands, just like rise up in us over and over and over again. A prayer that I've written down so many times would, would be one that echoes, like, Lord, would you would you make me through your word as holy of a saved sinner as I can be? Like, I know that I'm gonna fall short, but but I'm being being challenged and changed and sanctified by your word your word is truth and in a blurry world filled with a lot of blurry truth may may this be the thing that just rises up become a foundational thing that we rest upon but not just because some not just because some preacher said so or not just because we live in the bible belt not just because we go to a university that gives us the freedom to pray, gives us the the freedom to put Bible verses on Yale leader uniforms. It gives us the freedom to to gather together in university-owned buildings to worship God. Not not just because of all of those things, but we would learn to walk in obedience because we've seen you. Like we've tasted and we've seen that you're good and and in that we walk in obedience. So uh, for believers in this room tonight, May this be one of those like foundational moments where like I'm just gonna continually just try to look at you and to see you and to experience you and to taste you so that it changes how I live so I can learn to keep your commands. And for those that, that don't know you yet or are wandering away from you, may tonight be one of those, those major places of repentance where they turn around and they start sprinting the other way. Like I, I've gotta see this. I gotta try this. I gotta experience this. God, would you, would you reveal yourself to me? That's the end of the matter. We can chase so many created things that were created for your glory to be used in the way that you designed them. and we chase all of them to find satisfaction and like Solomon, we're going to see that they're vanity. We're going to see that they're meaningless outside of a relationship with you and you giving us the ability to enjoy them in their created way anyway. And so would we run to you tonight whatever way that looks like. Would you teach us to do that? Would you teach us to fear you And from that, learn how to keep your commands. Adam, we trust you by your spirit to do that in a way that only you can as we lean in and worship tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.